Anybody ever feel like you deal with just stuff? It just gets a hold of you, and stuff is out there, and life just throws its curveballs at you. We all deal with stuff. It's one of those four-letter words we don't like to mention, but we all deal with stuff in our lives. Um, Paul lays out here five challenges to us in this first part of the final chapter here to kind of help us reorganize our thinking and reorganize our way of looking at things. Remember, he's been talking through this whole book of Philippians, the first three chapters, about finding joy, choosing joy, finding joy in Christ and experiencing the love of Christ and remembering what Christ has done for us, what he did for us on the cross, how he set the example for us on the cross and through his life here in this world. And through all of that as believers, we can find joy. But yet in the midst of trying to find joy in all the stuff, all that goes on in our lives, Satan likes to throw stuff at us. And so Paul is... And then learn how to adapt them and how to come through them, an eternal mindset on all that's going on around us. And so this very first one is kind of telling, how would you like to have your name called out in church? I mean, here in verse 2, he lays out these two ladies there, obviously had some kind of issue going on, right? And he, he just calls them out. Now, my father-in-law, when he preaches, those of you who have met my father-in-law, you know that he likes to walk down, step down and walk the aisle. So he'll go all the way to the back and walk around the backside and come down this way and go up around. He likes to travel and he gets about 16,000 steps on his Fitbit while he's preaching. I remember hearing a story about one time in the middle of his message, one of the deacon's kids, because we all know the deacon's kids are worse than the preacher's kids, right? Deacon's kids were sitting in the back and they were just back there talking and talking and also one of his kids, not my wife, one of his other evil sons. One of his sons was back there. They're all kind of chit-chatting together. And he just stops his message, sermon in the middle of his message, asks one of the deacons, would you go up and please sit with those kids in the back and keep them quiet? He just calls them right out. And everybody's head, of course, flips around and looks and, how would you like to be these two ladies? Their names immortalized, but we thought better of it. Or, you know, in Acts, when he calls out Ananias and Sapphira, and then their names are now immortalized as those who tried to lie to the Holy Spirit, and therefore they're killed. Or in John and Third John, where he calls out Diotrephes, the one in that church who's causing huge dissension, those who, who's causing all kinds of problems, trying to usurp authority from the, the leadership there at the church at that time, and trying to uh, keep all the authority and the power within his own ranks. John just calls him out, lays it out right out there. I'm glad... I was not around when the apostles were writing these letters because I'm sure my name would have been listed somewhere in these letters. So look at me this morning. As we look at the challenge, the first challenge that Paul lays out here is that we as believers, we as the body of Christ, we as children of God, worshiping together, fellowshipping together in God's house, or should pursue like-mindedness with other believers. We are to have be like-minded in our pursuits and our goals and as we come together to seek one another's benefit. Look with me in Philippians chapter 1, 3. Paul writes, he says, So then, my dearly beloved, and to agree in the Lord. I also ask you, true partner, we don't know who true partner is, I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He calls them out there right in the middle of his, of his letter that's supposed to be read among, to all the believers there in that town. 
And not just, and these letters didn't just go to this church, but they also got copied and then read in the church up the street down in Colossae and Hierapolis and other places, Laodicea. These letters, they traveled around. So everybody in that whole Asia Minor region now knew that these two ladies had a problem. And again, we don't know what the problem was. We can assume they were participating in the gladiatorial fights. We can assume they were cheating on their, in their sales at the market. We can assume they had sin there, so they're bickering, and one's going over and stabbing the tires on one's chariot and popping them, making sure they couldn't run right. We can assume all kinds of things, but we don't know. We really don't know. But whatever the division that people were now beginning to take side on the public hearings in D.C., and they're watching the news, and all the ratings are going up for all these different stations because everybody wants to know what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's, what's, what's going to come out in this week's, in the testimony today and tomorrow or this next week. And everybody's kind of focused on that around the country. And it's distracting everybody from fulfilling the true mission of God. Paul's very direct. He calls not by name. I would not want to be called that. I said that already. But imagine the embarrassment. We don't know what it led up to this. We don't know if people tried to work with them privately on the side up to this. We don't know any of that. We just know Paul's words. I encourage you, sisters, to agree in the Lord. To come together, be of one mind, to refocus your energies and your efforts on the mission of Christ that is before you reaching your community and those, your neighbors around you with the gospel of Christ. I urge you, I implore you to seek to come together. This true partner, whoever that may be, we don't, again, know, we don't know who the true partner is, somebody else in that congregation, somebody else in that church, to come together and say, if, we, if you need to, true partner, come together and help these ladies. Act as that mediator for these two ladies because it is becoming a major distraction in that body. They're no longer able to function as a church should function. Paul loves them. He loves that church. And because of that, he calls them out. Be of like-mindedness. In fact, this is one of Jesus' prayers as well. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the unity of the church because he knows as human beings, we're going to have issues with one another. We're going to be at odds with one another from time to time. It's not one happy-go-lucky Pollyanna-ish community that we live in, we are going to have issues. In my own family, I got seven, seven people living home. I almost said seven daughters. Six daughters. And I love my daughters to death. I would do anything for them. But there are times I just don't like them. Anybody? Not my daughters. But, you, but your kids, you realize that? There are times I... It's true. Nobody else wants to admit that. Huh? It's just me and the family. Hands are up. Elbow in your spouse's It's... It, it is true. That's just who it is. Look at what Jesus said here. I said, do not ask for these only, talking about his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. He's, talking, he's praying for us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for us that we may be one. So why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something so neat and special when the body of Christ, and we come together and we're all focused on one unifying purpose, the world looks at us and goes, there are a bunch of weirdos in that building. It's true. We are a bunch of weirdos. 
We have one fulfilling, overarching mission in our lives is to go and reach as many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ as possible and to, call, to work on our own lives, to get rid of our own sin, to become more like Christ and to live holy and separate lives in this world. That is our goal, to become more Christ-like, to worship Him in everything that we say and do, to let our lives exemplify Christ. And when these distractions come, come here just because it gives us a good, feel-good feeling. I don't go do what I do just because I want to get a pat on the back. I do what I do as a child of God, not just as a pastor and as a former missionary. I do what I do as a child of God because I want to show how great God is. I want to exhibit to the world what He has saved me from to show that He has done so much in me. How can I dare not give back? to God. Last week we talked about Jesus as our true treasure. He is my treasure. He is what I long for. He is my number one in my life. My wife is number two. He is my number one. He is my true treasure. Everything I do, everything I'm about, all that I exist for is to bring glory and honor to His name. Whether it's working, whether it's shopping, whatever, wherever it may be, whether it's having Thanksgiving dinner, putting up Christmas decorations on the 30th of November. All those things we do together, we do to lift up the name of Christ and to glorify Him because He is... Realize how many times we've failed God? Think back on just this past week. How many times have you failed God? Have you said something, done something, whatever it may be, I'm not, I don't have cameras in each of your houses or watching your browsing history on your computers. I'm not listening. I'm not like Siri listening in every conversation or Alexa, every conversation you may have. But God is. And as we walk through our week, God is aware of us failing Him. Does He just cast us off as toxic people? He continually loves us, reaches out, you think he didn't know that we were going to fail him as he hung there on the cross and he died for each and every one of us? He knew exactly who we are. He knew exactly how many times we were going to fail him. He knew exactly how many times he was going to be disappointed in our behavior. And yet, he still loves us anyway. What's the solution that Paul lays out here for the ladies? He says, same mind. Have the same mind in the Lord. Come back together. Be of one mind. Not, not that you have to agree on everything, but look at the purpose. Look at what you're about. Look, be of the same mind in the Lord. He's not taking sides here. He doesn't say, oh, Yodi is right, or Syntyche is right, or neither one is right. He says, forget who's right and wrong. Agree on your purpose. Agree to come back together on your purpose, to reach your community for Christ, to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. That is our purpose. That is what we're about. He says, agree in the Lord. Have the right attitude toward each other. Understand that person is not the enemy. That other person that, that maybe you sleep next to or that you work with the next cubicle over or that kid that's in your house is driving you nuts. They're not the enemy. They are loved by God just as much as He loves you. He says, come together and agree in the Lord. Have the same attitude toward each other so that you might work together to advance the kingdom of God. 
See, like-mindedness can only come by imitating that humility of Christ. If you remember a few weeks back, we were, for us, in leaving his home in glory, humbling himself, becoming a servant, becoming a savior on the cross for you and I. We ought to imitate that same attitude. The like-mindedness is there. doesn't mean we throw out basic sound doctrine. doesn't mean that we come alongside and say, well, whatever you want to believe is okay. God's laid out what we should believe right here. Basic sound doctrine never goes away, but it does mean that we maybe our preferences, those things, I like this music, I don't like that music. I've told you many times, I'm a firm believer that in hell, there will be cats, lots and lots of cats. There will be Dr. Pepper, lots and lots of Dr. Pepper. There will be Southern gospel music, lots and lots of Southern gospel. And there will be basketball all over the place. All those things, torturing people for all of eternity. It's, it's in the Bible somewhere. It's, it's, uh, I've, I'm, I'm still looking. It's in the fine print, maybe one of the notes. We don't have to like the same things. I love drums. Obviously, I've been playing them for 40 okay. We don't have to all like the same things. It's okay. But God has placed us together so that we can fulfill his purpose, the purpose of the church, to reaching our community, the purpose of, of here in the body of Christ to grow stronger together, to encourage and challenge one another in our faith, to become what he desires us to be, a light in this world. I encourage you, and he and he's encouraging us here too, to always be on guard. Because Satan is seeking to use each of us as a catalyst for disunity. We all have that temptation. We all can get upset about something. We can all get frustrated about something, and he wants to use each of us. Satan would love to come in and destroy and to use us as a catalyst for disunity. And when that happens, the mission of Christ can't go forward like it should. That's why he's pulling these ladies together saying, Stop it! Just stop it! Come together and agree! You can, you can agree on music or basketball or Dr. Pepper, whatever it may be, but agree that we're there with the mission of God in mind, reaching our community and those that God has called us to. So that's challenge number one, to make sure that we are in unity together as a body of Christ. Number two, the challenge is there to rejoice always. Re- not rejoice sometimes, or rejoice often, or rejoice when you feel like it, or rejoice when you've had your coffee, or rejoice when... Whatever. Always is a very clear word. It's always. 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 No matter what's going on, we are to make that choice to rejoice. In verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Y'all remember singing that song when you were a kid in children's church and Awanas and Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That was an awesome song. We learned. You didn't even know you were singing scripture. We sang that song, and it just kind of went in one ear and out the other, because then as soon as that girl give you that note says, I checked no on the box. Do you like me? Yes or no? Motion at work, or something happens. You get in a fender bender while you're out driving around. You're driving down Riverdale Road, right, Mike? And all of a sudden you get smacked by some drunk driver, and you get in the hospital for... A gazillion days. You can, we can still rejoice in the midst of stuff going on around us that does not 
It's not fun. Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why did he say that to them? Why do you think Paul had to put that out there so plainly? He does this a lot in his letters. He writes, he, he kind of gets the shotgun out at the end of his letters. He goes, and lays out all this, like bullet points. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He's laid out all this theology, all this stuff in the earlier letter, the earlier part of his letters. And at the end, he's like, well, I just want to get this out there. And he's kind of bullet points, a whole bunch of stuff. Why do you think he lays this out there to the church of Philippians? Because they needed to hear it. They needed to hear that we can rejoice and should be rejoicing always. In spite of the circumstances going on around us, in spite of the frustration in life, in spite of what these two ladies were arguing about in their church, we as a church, as the body of Christ, should be rejoicing in all things. Worship Him and rejoice and give Him the praise and glory and He alone deserves. What can cause a loss of joy in our lives? Many things, but how, in verse 6, just a couple of verses later, he mentions anxiety, he mentions worry. That is a huge robber, a stealer of our joy. When we allow anxiety and worry to jump in. Others may be doubt, loss of a loved one, loss of income, uh, worried over work, worried over illness, relational difficulties. All these things may try to rob us of our joy. Worry about our kids, their spiritual well-being is a huge one, Right? Parents, we know that. We're always, we want our kids to have a good future. But if we are being Christ-minded and, and, and thinking about their f- eternal future, worrying about how they're going to be and how they're going to adapt and where they're, how God's going to use them. And when they get to college, I've got you know, two kids in college right now and one who's graduated. As they work go through this time in their life where they're making their faith their own, they're no longer believing just because daddy said it or just because daddy's the, the pastor. They're now making their faith their own. They're discovering reasons why they believe. And sometimes they come out on the other end and go, Dad, I'm sorry, I just don't believe exactly like you. And I'm like, how dare you, Rachel, tell me that? <laughs> She's not here, so I can say that. But it's, it's true. We, we, all, we worry about these things for our kids. And if we're not careful, we can let that worry rob us of joy. We can rob us of what comes from deep within, right? Because that's where joy comes from. Joy is not happiness in the moment. It doesn't come from the external circumstances. Those change. You know, double-minded man, James talk calls it. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and we'll be up and down like the stock market, up and down and up and down. We want to see the stock market go like this, but there are times where it goes, pfft, it just tanks. And those external circumstances that you look at and you're like, why did it go down today? I have no idea. Why did my stock drop? I have no idea. Why is my retirement going in the in the in the, in the tank? Because some external circumstance somewhere caused Christ. We ground ourselves in knowing who He is and why He loves us and what He's done for us and what our mission is. We can set aside those external circumstances. Not that we not affect, not that we don't see them, not that we're not affected by them a little bit, but we can set them aside and rejoice in what God is doing around us. We see the bigger picture. Think of Paul and Silas for a minute. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. I've never been thrown in prison for my faith. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. They're chained up there, chained between a couple guards. They're in that room. What do they choose to do? Mope? Oh man, my bread is moldy. Oh, 
Yuck, there's a little mouse over there. It's probably going to give me some disease. Twix, somebody send in a cat to kill the mouse. The only good purpose for cats, by the way. They choose at that moment, in that cell, to rejoice. They begin singing. They begin glorifying God. They begin lifting up their, the name of God's name. I don't know if the guards were going, shut up. You're going to get us. But he does tell us that what happened as a result. Minister and, and, and the guards were like, oh man, all, all the prisoners are going to get out. What are we going to do? And Paul said, don't worry. We're all still here. Nobody has left. And what happens to the, to the guard and his family? Paul shares Christ with them, and the whole guard and his whole family become believers. Because Paul chose to rejoice in his circumstances. He chose to rejoice in what was going on around him. And it was probably stinking hard. It is stinking hard sometimes when my external circumstances are driving me nuts. And they're frustrating me, and I'm losing sleep over it, and all that's going on around me. It is hard to rejoice. But I know as soon as I flip on some music and I start praising God along with with whatever music may be on there, that my spirit's going to lift. And I start praying to God and say, God, I know you're great. And I start remembering the good things that God did. And I start writing down those things that God has saved me from. Seem to kind of get set aside, don't they? Not that they've escaped and they've gone away. But our focus is no longer on those temporary things, but on the eternal purposes of God in our lives and what He is doing through us. A lot of people think that we get joy only when we get what we want, like Christmas, like God's some supernatural Santa Claus, but true joy comes when we realize we realize what we deserve. Right? We realize that we deserved judgment. And yet, by God's grace, He brings us salvation that unmerited favor that God showed to us. I'm in awe. I'm in awe of what God has done and where he's taken me from and brought me from and taken us through. I, I, know, I know where I would be without Jesus. I know, what kind of, I know what my sins are. I know what my passions are. I know what those sinful things are that Satan's always trying to pressure me with. I know where I, what hole I would be in how my family would have been destroyed long ago if it were not for Christ's presence in my life. And that gives me such great joy, knowing what God has saved me from. What's Paul's instructions here? He says, rejoice always. It's a command, not just a good advice. It's a command. He says, don't just take us as a suggestion. It's a command. And again, we're not looking at the world through Pollyannish eyes. We're seeing it with reality, but understanding that God's reality is even greater than the, what we see around us. He looks at it from up here. We see it from ground level. He looks down the road and sees where we're going to be. We only see the one step right in front of our eyes. We get frustrated and sad and upset because of what's going on here. God says, it's okay. I see you. If you just stick with me a little longer, it's be okay. And you're going to come out the other end of this tunnel much stronger. I'm sorry you got to go through this. I'm sorry life is tough for you right now. I'm sorry that the circumstances aren't just perfect. But you'll be okay. Rejoice in knowing that I'm with you and I'm walking alongside you. See, sin can be overcome and lives joyfully minded of God's 
grace, living the grace life in our own lives. Living this life before the world. And the world looks at us and they look at us with his eyes of wonder and astonishment. Like, what is wrong with you people? And we say, no, it's not what's going on right here. It's what's going on up here. That's what I'm focused on. The old song, Joyful Heart is Good Medicine, is another great one. As we remember those things that God has done, our hearts will be healed. So number two is rejoice always. Number three, the challenge just before us is to be known for always being gracious. Be known for always being gracious. We're going to blow through these last few here. Be known for always being gracious. In verse five, he says, let your graciousness be known to who? To everyone. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. This is the exact opposite of being contentious and self-seeking. It's evident in, in Jesus' life and ministry, right? It's evident in, in, in 1 Peter 2.23 when he says, And he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That was Jesus. when He, he lived a gracious life. He lived this life of not re- responding with evil and, and, and frustration. He responded with gentleness and graciousness to everyone. In fact, it's even so much, it's a qualification to be a pastor. In 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, it says, he must be gentle, not violent, but gentle. I hope I've been a gentle pastor to you. That is a qualification to be, one of the qualifications that Paul lays out there. He must be a gentle, gracious person. Paul says here that believers should display a gracious, gentle spirit before the watching world because the world is not gentle and gracious. And they want to drag us down into their pit. They want to drag us down into where they are, into that mud, so they can justify their lives and justify their way of thinking. We must rise above as children of God. We must rise above what the world says is okay and normal and seek Christ, to seek graciousness. What does it mean that it says the Lord is near? It means that Christ's return should inspire us to live differently. Understand that Christ is coming, that we are children of God, and we don't know when he's going to come. But we need to be ready, and so as a result, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He is coming soon. And that should inspire us to live differently, to act differently at work, to act differently as a mom and a dad, to act differently as your pastor, to act differently as a church member. It should inspire us, knowing that Christ is coming soon. We're going to meet him before before we know it. He may come while, while we're still living in this world. We may not meet him until we're face to face after we die. But it's short. We're only guaranteed a few years. And that's not even guaranteed that. We're only given. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Demonstrating a gracious attitude with those around us. Are we demonstrating a life of uh, six, 6 and 7? He says, don't worry about anything. It's Jesus. He says, don't worry. Through that worry, you go to God. You take it to God. You stop worrying about those things that you can't control. I can't control how my kids are going to come out the other end of college. I can't control how they're going to, the friends they're going to make in college. I can't control. They're going to make some weird friends. They're going to make some great friends. 
I'm saying nothing about Charlie over here. <laughs> we don't know these things that are going to happen to our kids in college. We, they may meet some great people. They may meet some people that are going to take them down a, a path of negativity and, and anxiety and frustration and worry. And they're, but they may meet some people in their dorms and on campus, the places they're studying, that are going to challenge them and encourage them to grow stronger and in depth in their faith. How do, we set the, how, would, how do we set that worry and that anxiety aside? Proverbs 12.25 says this, is that anxiety is a man's, in a man's heart. And remember that pack he was carrying? That's what was removed from him when he got to the cross of Christ. But the worry is like prayer. And Paul is saying here, the prayer ignites our dependence on God to do the removing. Look at what he says here. In everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Why do we do that? Why do we present those things to God? He's up there. He's the big man upstairs. He's not visible to our eyes. We know he's there. But sometimes, God, do you really hear me? Do you really hear my prayers? Or do my prayers go as far as the ceiling? I can guarantee he hears your prayers. Your prayers don't stop at the ceiling. Now, if you're in a house with 30-foot ceiling like this, your prayers go a little further. If you're in a house like mine where they're like 8 feet, 10 feet, they stop right there. But I can guarantee you God hears your prayers, and he answers your prayers. He is concerned with the pack on your back, this anxiety, this worry. He says there, lay it before me. I love reading through the Psalms and, and David is crying out to God, God, why is this happening to me? Why is Saul chasing me? Why is he throwing spears at me? Why is he doing all these things? Why am I going through this hurt in my life? And then he says, but in spite of not knowing the answer, not knowing the outcome, and not understanding, God, I will trust you. I will lay it before you. I will believe that you are God. I will trust and believe in you. Why does Paul mention this about anxiety and worry? Because he knows that worry and anxiety is a great emotional immobilizer. Think of a deer in the headlights, right? Anybody ever hit a deer? Anybody ever hit an elk? <laughs> you may not be here if you did. <laughs> in college, Regina and I were driving back to campus one day. We, I was a youth pastor an hour away from school. And we're in, uh, in Virginia, and we're going back, driving 55 miles an hour on this four-lane highway. And all of a sudden, Regina, she looks up, and she says, I think, in the middle of the road. I'm like, no, you don't. Uh, get out of the road, because fear and worry like that deer, or my headlights are an emotional immobilizer. It stops. And you can't move. You just get immobilized. That stupid, stinking deer ruined my car. Well, it ruined Regina's side of the car. My side was okay because I turned that way. Um, probably not good for her. Her door was jammed. She couldn't get out, and she was in a skirt trying to climb over my stick shift for the next two weeks. That was not fun. That stupid deer was immobilized by my headlights. That's what fear and worry and anxiety does to us. If we don't lay it before God. You know, there's a difference between alarm, being alarmed at something, and worrying about something. 
The alarm goes off at 7 a.m. In my mind, bing, bing, bing. Oh, the garbage truck is coming at 7.15. My trash is not out yet. Therefore, I need to get out there and take my trash out to the road so my trash gets taken out. That's alarm. Something you can do with. Worry. Is the truck coming today? Garbage? I don't know. What's going on? Worry immobilizes and keeps us from being able to function, to do what God wants us to do. And that's where Satan wants us. He wants us to be stuck, to be immobilized, to be frozen like that deer in the headlights. Where we can't operate and do what God wants us to do because we are so worried about the outcomes around us, those circumstances. It doesn't also living free from worry doesn't mean that we live dispassionate, unemotional lives. We can be very passionate about things. Romans, Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I would, could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ from the benefit of others, and of my brothers and sisters, from my own flesh and blood. Does that sound like somebody who's dispassionate about life? He is passionate about his brothers and sisters. He's passionate about those Jews. He said, I would rather that I would be cut off so that my brothers and sisters, so the other Jews could become get saved. I'd rather that I, the promises of God, if it meant that they could all be included. Paul was extremely passionate. He, but he didn't let his worry and his frustration, his anxiety over his people, keep him from doing what God wanted him to do. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. As he's going toward there, he stops and he weeps because he knows what's coming. Jesus was called the man of sorrow as he cried out about us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, the cure for anxiety is this, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. Don't they, they don't sow or reap or gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't they worth more? Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin or thread. And yet I tell you, not even Solomon and all of us if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? God is our refuge. God is our fortress. God is the one to bring us protection. Psalms uh, 91.1 says this, The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, Who is my refuge and my fortress? My God in whom I trust. Cast your fears. Cast your worry. Let God take the sack of potatoes off your back. Number five, the challenge is this, very quickly. We are to think on praiseworthy things, always. To let these things fill our minds. Not the circumstances around us, not those pressures of life, not those sins of, in our lives that are keeping us down, but we are to think on praiseworthy things, those things that glorify God and that are good for our thoughts and get us refocused on Him. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. 
Do what you have learned to receive and heard from me and seen in me, and the grace of God will be, grace of peace will be with you. I love these whatevers. I love the whatevers. Whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is honest, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy. Dwell on these things. Call back to your mind those things that you know that God has done for you. Call back to your mind again those things that God is going to do. Call back to your mind what God has promised. And peace will come. Because Satan, again, wants us to be like that deer. He wants us to be focused on the negative. He wants us to be focused on our circumstances. And when that is the case, we call back to Scripture. We call back to what God has done. See, growing in the likeness of Jesus, growing as a child of God, requires this renewed mind within us. It requires us to change our way of thinking about life. It requires us to change our thinking so that our lives will change. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and this is true worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul says you've got to re- get your mind out of the gutter. You've got to get your mind refocused on the things of him. You've got to get your mind transformed by the Holy Spirit so that you can know exactly what God wants for you. Jesus prayed, again, he prayed for the disciples. He says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify the church, sanctify believers, sanctify my disciples by the truth, by the word of God, because God, your word is truth. That is what we're going to fill our minds with. That's what we need to fill our minds with, as Regina shared earlier. Fill your minds with the truth. Fill your minds with the word of God. So those things are what, We focus on, not on the external circumstances of life. And David, finally, David says in Psalm 139, 23, he says, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me, I know I've got problems. Search me, try me, walk in this everlasting way. This life we live on this earth, we're only here 70, 80 years, so much less than that. Eternity is forever. We've got such a short time to focus on this relationship with God. We've got such a short time to get out there to make a difference in the world around us. We've got such a short time to impact our kids' lives before they go off to school and meet these weird friends. We've got such a short time with those around us. Let's make the most of every opportunity that comes our way. Saturate saturate our, our minds with God's Word. And when that happens, the whatever's of life will be put in place. This understanding, not on our own, as we sing together. <laughs>